Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, use my head like a revolver, a flying saucer, take me away, give me your daughter. You've got the universe reclining in your hair. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to tell one of those stories tonight. We're going all the way back to the Cretaceous period tonight. (laughs) I'm joined by Encyclopedia T. Hello, everybody. And Jonathan J.M. Rowe, the defender of bass players everywhere. <laughs> Good evening, Tapsters. And we're in the Vinegaroon Saloon on a lovely night just before All Hell is released in Texas, and we go over 100 for yeah, uh, 30 a, days. Maybe our last 90-degree day for yep. a while. If you hear us sweating next week, you'll know why. We're talking about <clears throat> a band that I'm going to say reminds me a little bit of our podcast on The Jam. That's interesting. Why is that? Interesting. What side of the Atlantic were they a big Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. We're talking about T-Rex tonight, ladies and gentlemen, are absolutely huge in England. And I think a lot of Americans think they're a one-hit wonder. <laughs> yeah, and, and the hit was made by somebody different. <laughs> no, it later. was a bi- it was a bigger yeah, hit. It was a bigger hit by T Rex, but it was still. Um, uh, I think most people associate it with associate it with Robert Palmer and uh, what was the band Power Station. Power Station. Yeah, which uh, is is a great injustice, but that's the way it is, and yeah. Yeah. that provides a need, ladies and gentlemen. This is Vinyl Tap is here to fill that need. <laughs> yeah. Now, Tony. Yeah, Doug. Did you pick this album? Uh, no, I did not pick this album. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, did you pick this album? I did not, but I probably would have. Okay. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Okay. I did not pick this album. That means it was a listener's Listener choice. Picked, yes. It was a listener's choice, and... Before you ask me who the listener is, I don't remember. <laughs> well, I know that there's more than one who wanted to hear this. Yeah. Uh, there there was, but uh, yeah. we usually name a few, and I forgot to pull that up. So well, I apologize right. to everybody yeah. who... Ra- you know who ra- you are. Yes. So if you had to say one thing remarkable about this album, this is a landmark album because of what? It's the... Are you, are you asking about the glam thing? What What's the... F- marvelous fabulous reason this song is 
this I album. I think it's is, because it's the first time that Marvel, Marvelous and Fabulous could be used in the context where there's distorted guitars. So it gave it a little, I think when you get to the essence of glam, I think that's what. This is the did. first glam rock album. Yeah. This is the. The birth of glam in the UK. This is the birth of glam. That's right. Yeah. This, yeah. this, well, an album form. Yeah. This would be like the Ramones first album or uh, any of these well, people. Who, Chuck Berry. Has like awesome. Chuck Berry. Can, yeah. can, can I, I want to say something about that though. Uh, I was about to ask, can I say something? But no, I can't. I want to say something about it. The weird thing about glam is trying to pin it down to what it is. Because there's such a fashion consciousness to it that has nothing to do with the music. There's a subject matter part of it that has nothing to do with the music. But if I were to ask you guys, and I know I'm not hosting, but if I ask you guys what glam sounds like, you could probably give me an idea. And there's a song in particular on this album, there's lots of them, but one in particular where I think it could it could rival like being the audio audio dictionary definition of glam i think so too and um, i think that the way that i think of glam is just rock and roll with arrangements where there's it's <laughs> i mean i'm sorry i'm not laughing at that comment i'm laughing at doug's response to it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's to me. It's the first time where I mean, I'm not talking about their stuff with with the Beatles and where there's a bunch of string arrangements and everything. But I'm talking about like the essence of rock and roll, just brought down to something where the chord changes aren't all that um, disjoining or anything like that. But there is something that is brought into it where the the strings will be coming in, weird vocals will be coming in. There's some sort of production value that is put on this the the album itself or the songs uh, themselves uh, uh, we we've talked before about glam artists a couple of glam artists lou reed we talked about transformer mm -hmm. which is a glam album i think i think yeah. you could call it that we talked we did the album more with bowie uh I, i'll tell you what's interesting about this album compared to those to me is while the guy is wearing glitter and doing whatever there's nothing androgynous about any of the subject matter on this song this is a boy talking about a girl most of the time most of the time and yes. when he's not there's nothing there's not any quit he's something else he's talking but the way, about yeah and the way he's talking about it though is very flowery and well and the phrasing the phrasing i think attitude and phrasing more than structure of music yeah i had after listening to mark bowen all the last three weeks i had to put on johnny cash tonight <laughs> to balance myself out there is a way first of all there's an attitude yeah definitely it's flamboyant attitude. yes yeah it is expressive yep it is uh effeminate and then there's the phrasing which i don't know if you have much left of glam rock if you made those guys sing like bob dylan or I, somebody yeah I, I think the phrasing is when you listen to this album it's blues riffs over I, and over absolutely again. yeah i I'm going to disagree with something you said. I don't think there's, I don't think the attitude is feminine at all on this album. This album to the me. The delivery though. I don't the phrasing think, is a, maybe a the feminine. phrasing is, but the. Take me away. I, I feel like, I, I feel like this guy is oozing. I'm not saying he's not heterosexual as hell. In fact, I saw the interview with him when he was trying to say he was bisexual. And that was 
so unbelievable. It looked like <laughs> it wasn't was, like watching Bowie say the same. Thing. It was yeah, right. It was not. Um, it was like he was trying and, to be with the cool kids. And, and I don't want to. I don't want to get mired down in that stuff because I really don't care one way or another. But I, what surprised me in listening to this was how I felt how masculine it was compared to those other albums, which were deliberately trying to be something else, and this meant, isn't. At least it didn't seem that way to me. Well, I, I don't think there's anything. Uh, effeminate about it except for the phrasing. Yeah. yeah. That's, and and he's wearing a dress and he has glitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, we got I that. Mean, right. Just um, back back then they didn't know that men couldn't wear glitter just as well as women. Yeah. One of the things that I think that Mark Boland does it's a little different from Lou Reed and David Bowie is especially Bowie. This album it has stuff about like He's in a unicorn world. He's in this, 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 you know, he's cosmic dancer, all this sort of stuff. And to me, there's like a heat and maybe it comes from the, the, the background, you know, the folk background that he started in. But this album to me, Boland's earnest in this stuff. And to me, when you're, when you listen to Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars, there's just like an aloofness to this. Like I'm talking about, I'm a space alien and I'm coming down to save earth. And, well, and to me, you know, Boland is like Boland, that. Tyrannosaurus Rex, his previous band with the bongos and the acoustic yeah. guitar and the I'm Bob Dylan or De- Dion yeah. or uh, Donovan. 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 He yeah. does like Dion too uh, <laughs> earlier. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that had fairies and oh yeah, all even of the, the word all the mythology yeah. stuff. I, all well, over it. up until I'm Battle sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Right, I was just going to say he comes by that naturally and and considers himself a poet. And, I, yeah. I, I will. I do want to make a comment though on something you said, JM, and I'm not going to disagree with you. We can talk about it later. But I, I, you may be the first person that I've ever heard use the word "earnest" talking about Mark Boland. <laughs> I, I think there is an earnest. I think that there is this sort of. I, I love this, and I, I've read interviews and <clears throat> seen interviews with him where he does just seem like. He want he takes himself very very seriously. Well, I'm not going to disagree with that. I do think he takes himself very seriously, probably more than anyone else. But I think that he is the epitome of a musical chameleon. He's the first guy that was like putting his finger up, seeing where the th- where the where the next sort of big thing was, and following that to stardom. Because the yeah. the one thing that sort of is part of his tra- trajectory throughout his musical career is not so much wanting to be the best musician he could possibly be, but to be the biggest musician he could That's possibly right. be. That's true. I think if you laid out three paths to stardom, mm-hmm. music, acting, whatever else is left, um, right. he would have he would have chosen the one that was a sure bet. Yep. I don't feel like he was compelled to do music the way some people. Are. I, 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 I think that I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. And yeah. that's not to take away from anything that we're going to be talking about tonight. I just think it's really interesting because being uh, a star was the priority. That was the priority for right. him. Yeah, and and he he did it. Isn't that one yeah. of the things he did was he he walked up to some guy he wanted to help arrange his records and the you know first thing I'm going to be a I'm going to be a big star. Well, he he was saying that to everybody. I, I, at least at 12 years old, he yeah. was already saying yeah. yeah. He was even when he was mighty Joe Young, he wanted to be Cliff Richard. Yeah, yeah. that was his <laughs> it was his idol. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, English um, Elvis. before we go any further, I want to talk to the Americans. If, if the British are out there thinking <laughs> they know all this already, they yeah. know what a big deal T-Rex was. Uh, I can't tell you how many songs by huge British bands mention T-Rex, uh-huh. yeah. but it's a bunch. I, I don't know who. 
better the who, uh, sound of old TV. Yeah, I mean, Mott the Hoople, obviously. Yeah, yeah, they they show up in. They're admired by all the bands American th- Americans think of the huge bands. And he was at the top in the early seventies. He was up there with all of those guys. And something there's a disconnect with the United States of America. And I I spent some time asking people, tell me a hit by T Rex. Zero, Zero responses. Well, yeah. uh, it, it what's what's interesting is that uh, you know, there's some comparisons. Obviously he and he was enamored by Sid Barrett, but there's some comparisons there too because Floyd didn't get big until Barrett was gone, and I'm right. not sure they would have ever caught on when they tour. Of course, he was a little. He had obviously mental issues when they toured, but that Piper's at the Gates of Dawn album isn't anything that struck any sorts of chord with right. American audiences. And yeah, so and it was, it's interesting you talked it about wasn't the jam. until the final cut where they really took <laughs> and then you were talking about the jam too, which to me blows my mind how that band wasn't bigger in the states. But yeah, there's yeah, there is like a weird stuff, there's yeah. a weird thing how. Uh, and you know, I typically made fun of as being the defender of the British fans because I think their musical taste is often better than Americans. But uh, and I stand by that. Right, well, yeah, okay. We we've got people in the audience who hate America too. too so. <laughs> I didn't say I hated America. I just think. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I misunderstand that? You did. <laughs> well, let's talk about. We're going to talk about a guy because. The guru of glitter. We 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 call T Rex a band. Yeah, basically, <laughs> Mark Bolin and a guy who played bongos. That was yeah. Tyrannosaurus Rex was a, a, a psychedelic uh, folk deal with a guy with a guitar and a guy with a bongo. But when we get to T Rex, even before T Rex, this is Mark Bolin. Mark Bolin yeah. and and uh, maybe somebody who's a little bit slightly under the fifty percent mark. Never never fifty fifty. But it's yeah, you're right. There's interchangeable players. He's the commonality for all of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Again, he wanted to be the big thing, and he's not going to compete with somebody else in the band. So it's yeah. it's um if if Mark Bolin left T Rex, it would be like uh, Mark Knopfler leaving, leaving Dire, Dire Straits. Yeah. It would you'd have a really good rhythm section. So <laughs> well, it's fun. It's funny you say that because I'm pretty sure. Uh, who was the guy who repl- Mickey Finn? I think toured as Mickey Finn's T Rex for a while after. Is that uh, right? Yeah, and I don't know if that was before or after Mark Boland died, but yeah, they, yeah. he definitely did it. <laughs> That's tacky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're dealing with a guy named Mark Feld. Uh huh. And he, he was born. You want to tell us a little bit? He was born in Hackney. Is that right? Yeah, 1947 to a Jewish working class family, and he's named after his father's brother i think who had died the year before um that's right and uh you know like a lot of people we talk about uh although that we did mention the trajectory or the the impetus for for doing it was a little different he he fell in love with rock and roll at a pretty early age gene vincent chuck berry were two of his big faves when he was when he was little at nine he begs his mom to get a guitar and she ends up getting him a suzuki acoustic guitar um, which he put on layaway. The big reason I say say that is at the time that was a big deal. Like not everybody could do that. Well, so. I remember he said that his parents didn't have money, but if they asked, if he asked for something, yeah, they eventually made sure he got it, even if it took a long yeah. time. Yeah, and, and he, I said he was born in Hackney. That's outside of London. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's uh, as we already previously mentioned, he becomes enamored with Cliff Richard, and uh, even started sounding like him a little bit. His first band was formed when he was eleven. And it was a group called Susie and the Hula Hoops, and uh, <laughs> Helen Shapiro. Do you guys know who Helen Shapiro is? She was on the. She was a vocalist for the band. 
Any idea who she is? No. Well, obviously she was 11 at the time, but she she's one of the UK's most famous female singers. And she actually, 1963, toured with the Beatles, but they were her opening act. <laughs> so she was, she was a big deal. Um, wow. Yeah, and uh, he's, you know, when he's in school, he's struggling with school. He did, he's not really getting it. There's some speculation he might have been dyslexic. I don't know if that was ever diagnosed or not. But he starts writing poetry at a fairly young age. His big influences are Dylan Thomas and Rumbald. Um, the, the Torn down. Yeah, torn the, down. Rombo. The, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, never, I, always, Rom- I always pronounce it wrong, too. How do you say it? Rombo. Rombo. Thank you. That's, I only know that because of the Van Morrison song. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, the funny thing is, is like a lot of post-British kids, boys in particular, he becomes what? A mod. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in 61, he's 14. He's kicked out of school for bad behavior. And he looked really sharp when he yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's hanging out at the Stanford Hill Jewish Youth Club where he's the leader of a mod gang. And the next year, he's at 15, he's featured in a men's fashion magazine called Town, along with an article touting him as the face of London's emerging mod scene. You know, I wish we could get our gang kids to dress so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mod, mod uh, there's something about that. It's a sharp look. It's a sharp look, yeah. Um, well, it appeals to us, obviously, with yeah. all three of us wearing black t-shirts. <laughs> I think mine's a little off gray, but uh, that's he, only because it's been washed. Somewhere. Yeah, um, he he ends up signing with a modeling agency. So he's as early on he's a model. You know, uh, he gets yeah. a few gigs as a model as a catalog shoot. Yeah, um, he's up in shop windows. And oh stuff, yeah, they have know. him like he's a, a cutout, a cutout <laughs> in shop windows. Yeah. yeah, I'd forgotten about that. We should get that done. We should. Um, <laughs> in in 1964, he meets a young man named Davy Jones. You guys want to say who that is? <laughs> <laughs> not, the, not the monkey, David Jones. The engineer that crashed his train. <laughs> <laughs> the person who would eventually become David Bowie. Yeah, and, and they meet because they happen to be managed by the same guy named Leslie Kahn. Yeah. Uh, this is how they meet, though. Uh, one day, Kahn calls them both into his office, but not for any sort of musical reasons. Uh, they're not doing much, and he needs his office painted. So he, <laughs> so he asks them to paint his office, and they get off on a bad start because Bolin is still a mod at this point, and Davy Jones is not a very well-dressed individual. Mm. And so he looks at his shoes and tells Bowie his shoes are crap, and they don't come off. They don't hit up, you know, hit it off very well. Um, but, you know, obviously Bowie uh, and Bolin, it's funny, throughout their career, the two of them are, would you call them, are they, they're not, I mean... They have a there's, lot. There's of, not a rivalry, really. Except no, there's for the, a rivalry. Well, from Bolin's point of view, I think. I think he was jealous of Bowie, but I don't think Bowie... Uh, I don't know. I don't think Bowie gave him the time of I, day eventually, but... I I don't know. I, I, they shared a lot of... hiding it. Yeah, well, they, they, they shared a lot of the same personnel in their band, especially one of the guys we're going to be talking about later, Tony Viscotti. Well, and also Rick Wakeman. Yeah. And Rick Wakeman, yeah. um, which is interesting. I want to get, when we get to that, I want to talk about that, but what, what's a, a kind of a couple of funny side notes with the Bowie thing. Um, when Boland actually got some success as Tyrannosaurus Rex, he asks Bowie, who still wasn't very known at that point to open for him. So Bowie, as his opening performance does a mime based on China's invasion of Tibet and is roundly booed by the crowd. 
So uh, his, his, his first experience uh, uh, on stage, uh, well, not first, but one of his first experiences on stage, and especially for Toronto Star Rex, is getting booed off because he's playing a mime. Um, well, I mean, probably everything was easy after that. Yeah. Um, and so... What the interesting thing that happens to him in '65, like a lot of other people that we've talked about, he has a life-changing experience when he discovers Dylan, yeah. Bob Dylan, and he eventually leaves the mod thing behind, starts dressing like Dylan again. We're talking about a chameleon here. Yeah, There's pictures of him wearing the hat. Yeah, yeah it's so funny. Uh, yeah, the first um, the, the corduroy hat that Bob Dylan wore on the cover of his his first album, right? Uh, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the first where it's got him holding the guitar, looking down at the camera. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so he's uh, he meets this guy named Alan Warren, who is uh, later becomes a famous portrait UK portrait photographer. But at the time, he was uh, the host of this kid show called Five O'clock Club. <laughs> he moves in with this guy. This guy becomes his first manager, and Warren gets him a recording session where he records a version of "Blowing in the Wind," mm-hmm. but it sounds like Cliff Richard. I would like to play that for you if you guys please do. Before she can sleep in the sand, how many times can a cannonball fly before it's forever There you go, a little taste of Mark Boland singing "Blowing in the Wind." <laughs> That's rough guitar yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, rough. Um, he's still Mark. But you can hear that. He still Mark Feld when he goes in the studio, but when they're riding out the, I guess, uh, on, on the uh, acetate or whatever, he changes his name to Toby Tyler for some reason. Yeah. I would um, too if I just sang that. <laughs> but here, here's, a, here's an interesting, uh, and I'm going to slide into a connection, Doug. Where's the doobie? Going back to 1966. <laughs> That's right. Recorded by Linda Ronstadt. And Van Halen. Um, I don't have. I'm going to bet that her version was better. (laughs) I'm guessing too. But yeah, so he recorded it. He and Linda Ronstadt recorded the same song. Did it have a Beatles uh, guitar solo? I have no idea. Um, (laughs) That's a good connection, too. That is a great connection. Um, I forgot about that. Well, while we're on connections. We have an extremely connected person. Uh, yeah. Jonathan Jam Rowe, would you like to connect him to someone besides David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am going to... Okay, here's one maybe out of the blue. No, Nobody else has. Roy Thomas Baker. Ah, that's right. I didn't have that one, but you are um, correct. Yes. Uh, he, Roy Thomas Baker was the engineer on this album. He was. And on previous albums as well. He was one of uh, Tony Visconti's right-hand men at the time. Um. Yeah, he's worked with the Cars. He's worked with Queen. He did the first, the Cars album we talked about. Yeah, and he's a big, big, uh, big influence on the way Queen sounded. In yeah, the studio, yeah, so. and uh, he also worked with. We haven't talked about Cheap Trick, but he's also worked with Cheap Trick. Why haven't we talked about Cheap Trick? I don't know because there's so many. I, don't, I yeah. mean, every one we've done was a good one to do. Yeah. Um. So that's one. I've got others, but T. No, you, you. I've gave mine. You, Doug. Well, we got the Who. We do. 
They opened for the Who for a little while. Who did? T-Rex. Uh-huh. Well, there's another, uh, one of his other bands, John's Children, opened for the Who as well. Maybe that's what I meant. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, he, maybe Tyrannosaurus Rex did too, but the funny thing about uh, the John's Children thing is that uh, they were trying to one-up. They were trying to out-Who the Who on stage. And they're touring in Germany, and they cause a near riot where the Who almost didn't. Uh, yeah, that's the one I'm talking. Didn't about. get yeah. to. Uh, they didn't get to finish that tour. No, they didn't. The Who sent them home. And the funniest thing about that is that uh, Pete Townsend's response to it is he said, um, he said, uh, yeah, they were too loud and too rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> So God, you you want to go home with bragging rights? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, T, you got another one for us? Yeah, this is this is very ten- tenuous, but I think it's kind of funny. That's why I'm bringing it up. So uh, Tony Visconti, uh, he was his he was a when he came over to the UK, he worked with uh, Denny Cordell. Mm-hmm. That's who he who he was. Denny Cordell mentored him for a while, and, and I think he, he worked for him for a long and time. And he produced. The Willis Allen Ramsey. Yes, that's album. what I was going to say. Yeah. Denny Cordell produced the Willis Allen Ramsey <laughs> album. Yeah. So I was going to say there's a little bit of a. He also produced the Moody Blues and the Move, and he worked yeah. for Shelter. That's why he produced the Willis Allen Ramsey thing. But um, yeah, yeah. I, that was my tenuous connection that I thought was kind of funny. Well, those are pretty good there. Yeah. And he also worked with Tom Petty. Yeah, uh, he did. He did. So um, he's kind of responsible for getting Tom Petty career going. Yeah. Um, and then we mentioned earlier. Rick Wakeman. Um, he yeah. played piano on one song on this album, but he played the piano on... Um, Hunky-dory. Hunky-dory. There's rumors he played on Transformer as well, but nobody... So, I, I find... That, since we're talking about Rick Wakeman, it's amazing to me that a guy who was so tied to prog rock, namely, yes, but also his solo stuff as well, was so much a part of this glam rock stuff. Yeah, I mean... and. So he and he actually the song he plays on is is the hit yeah, yeah. is uh would get it on yeah and um, it's not it's like a boogie woogie style piano it's not known what he's known for well the reason he's on it is because oh well we'll get to that when we talk to the song yeah. anyway but Rick um, Wakeman <laughs> Rick Wakeman said his favorite thing that he's ever played on is Life on Mars well come on <laughs> that's one of the yeah. greatest songs ever recorded yeah. so. I have one more connection. Tony Secunda. Hmm. That sounds like a Sopranos character. Now, Tony Secunda was the manager of the Moody Blues and the Move. Oh. And he's the guy who gave Chrissy Hine her first break. He, she was evidently not doing well. He helped her with rent uh, and was her first manager. They ended up not. They ended up parting ways before she ever really recorded much of anything. But. Uh, how he's connected is in 71 he became t-rex's manager and after the release of electric warrior he helped Boland set up his own record label that t-rex wax company through mm-hmm. emi the other unfortunate thing about him is he is it's uh um thought that he's the person who introduced cocaine to mr Boland as well so yeah well we keep coming back to this theme ladies and gentlemen yeah don't be creative and a coke <clears throat> addict all right, so that's it for connections. Uh-huh. We were rolling on with uh, Mr. Bowen's uh, rise to fame. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think we left off with the Linda Ronstadt song, but 
and he's he's enamored with Dylan and uh, Cliff Richard. And well, he and he's so enamored with Dylan that that uh, that Toby Tyler persona doesn't last very long, and he changes his name to Mark Bolin, and Bolin is evidently a contraction of Bob and Dylan. That's how you get. I've heard, also heard that that was not his idea. That was his. He, he blamed a lot it on of different. Somebody yeah, else. he blamed it on his. The uh, and I manager. heard it was also uh, from a friend that. So anyway, uh, yeah, we'll there's about three or that. four different versions. Of I, how I did he got hear that. three distinct. Well, yeah, and and as we talked about him being enamored with Dylan, his hope was to be the UK version of Dylan. That was a little bit shattered by Donovan's first release. <laughs> He's like, well, I guess that guy beat me to the punch. <laughs> yeah. He did get a deal to record a single with Decca that was released in November '65 called "The Wizard." That's wizard. The wizard. That sounds um, like a uh, mouse with the underbite. <laughs> it, uh, you know, it bombed. Surprise! Surprise! Even, surprise! Yeah. Even though he he did do he did appear on I think three different television shows, including Ready Steady Go, to promote that single, yeah. and it didn't do anything. And then he re- he recorded another single in it was released in June of '66 called The uh, Third Degree. Yeah. Well, I say, yeah, that's I can, better. I can, yeah. yeah, it is better. But I, I picture girls in go-go boots and mini skirts with frilly dresses. Well, and, yeah. I, I don't see much. <laughs> I don't see a whole lot of of space necessarily between what we're talking about tonight and that. You can hear that in what we're talking about tonight. I think. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Um, but he does. Tyrannosaurus Rex takes some some turns. Yeah. That may they're highly regarded. And they may be the most tedious music I've ever listened to. <laughs> it is pretty uh, tedious. It sound, everything sounds the same. Like at one point, I actually thought I was listening to the same well, song. But no, yeah. it's not. That's no. funny. Um, anyway, uh, that that single also did not do well. Yeah. Then this is this becomes sort of a, an mo for him. Later that year, he shows up at the doorstep of Simon Napier Bell. Do you guys know who that guy is? I do not. I do he not. shows up with guitar in hand on this guy's doorstep. He was the Yardbirds manager. Oh, that's right. I heard that. Um, story. He yeah. also happened to produce the fantastic Roger the Engineer LP. So this is this Which guy's we a big need deal. To do at some point, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bolin Bolin charms this guy. And so through Napier Bell, he records his third single, single, and this one's for a parlophone called Hippie Gumbo. Sounds like he's trying to be Robert Johnson and just can't. Uh, <laughs> Again, he is a he appears on Ready Steady Go to play it, play that, promote that single, and the single flops. This is what's sort of funny. Napier Bell said that Boland was completely unaware of his shortcomings, in particular how bad a guitarist he was, <laughs> and uh, and and he just just soldiered through. So what what Napier Bell does is he hooks him up with another band that's about to sort of on the verge of breaking called John's Children who we talked about before. They're the band that opened up for The Who. The Who. Uh 
he was so convinced that Boland's vocals were, to quote him, unsaleable, that he Boland is singing back up. He's writing songs for the band. He's playing guitar, but he's not, you know, he's not doing anything else. They have a they have a a, a single called Desdemona, which fails to chart. But mostly people blame it on the fact that it was it was banned by the BBC because of a line that said, "Lift up your skirt and fly." And we don't approve of that here, ladies and gentlemen. So what, what's interesting about the last three songs we played is you can hear elements of things that he's doing. Now he doesn't the sing. Drums, he doesn't yeah, sing on that. Yeah. But you can hear elements of everything that are come that the sort of warbly voice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the drums, the way that the drums are kind of taking a kind of a Keith Moon type aspect to them. Well, and they're also. I mean, I think one of the things is sort of. I think you would say very, very much a part of the T-Rex sound is they are front and center. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's from him playing with a guy on bongos and acoustic guitar. I don't know, but... Just left of center. But but anyway, (laughs) so it's around this time that Boland decides he doesn't want to be in a band. He doesn't want to be a background anymore. He wants to be the guy, the star. And so he places an ad uh, in a music brag to try to get people to join his new band. And one of the people who answers this ad is a 17-year-old drummer named Steve. Well, he goes by the name Steve Peregrin, Peregrin Grin Took. His real name was Steve, Stephen Ross Porter, but he was enamored with the old Tolkien universe, so, uh-huh. which everybody was at that time, <laughs> I right? So, yeah, I yep. think they when they when they got when they were going concerned, I think uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex used to play a club called well, Middle Earth. Well, who who was it? I think it was Bolin that said, "If you want to understand me." You have to read Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is right before Boland's 20, 20th birthday, and so he forms this band, Tyrannosaurus Rex. They were initially a five piece until they had one horrible performance at the Electric Garden. In Com- was that the one where everybody got there two hours before they had to play? Oh, I don't know about that. That's, Maybe like a, they all answered is <laughs> all these guys answered the ad and he says, <laughs> "Okay, we're on in two hours." Well, and it was a disaster. One, one of the yeah, that may have been it. One of his mo's early on was he didn't think you needed to uh, rehearse. He just thought you just get together and do something, and uh, and and that Sounds was like most of the bands. Well, I've and that was one of the things with with John's children that we didn't talk about. They he never tuned his guitar. The drummer would get on stage before the band played and tune Mark Boland's guitar because it was always out of tune because he just didn't think he needed to tune it. So this is also he didn't think. Uh, they is that needed to rehearse. Hubris, or is that just I, ignorance? I think it's hubris. I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's both. Um, I, but this is an important theme that this vibrato is a large part of why he became such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Because if he'd gotten up there, oh, I'm so shy, yeah. the whole thing wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that when he meets Tony Visconti. There's a funny story about him, uh, the bravado there. But so uh, what happens is that, that that band ends up disbanding. They take all the electric instruments with them, so he's stuck with an acoustic <laughs> right. guitar. Oh, the the, the, elect, the company, the, the company, company took it away from yeah. possesses yeah. everything. So all he's got in his well, that, they, they they say that there's two. That's one of the things he said. The other thing is he just 
he was so embarrassed by the performance that he thought that he should He's probably, scared to go electric. Well, well, I, I, think, I think one of the... And I don't want to sit here and throw this guy under the bus the whole time, but I think one of the things that's interesting, interesting about him is it's difficult to parse what is actually what he actually really believes and what he's saying after the fact to kind of... There's just some of the, like the interviews that you read or or watch or hear by him there's just stuff that just doesn't make sense yeah. like he's going well, i've been asked to write a science fiction novel i'm like i, I who the hell's gonna ask you i watched a lot of interviews yeah never once did i think boland's priority was telling the to truth. share the truth yeah <laughs> i felt like there was something else he wanted he's selling himself oh, he and, just sounded like oh i'm know, so exhausted we're, we're talking about a man to, yeah who never got past 29 yeah. so um that's young, and uh, I remember being around that age, and I wouldn't trust much of what I said. Well, what what ends up no, happening? What ends, what ends up so. happening is they he the, the everybody leaves, but uh, but Steve Peregrine took, and yeah. so they continue on as an acoustic duo, um, and they, a lot of their songs are wrapped around the Tolkien mythology. Um, <laughs> Very but much. Peregrine was one of the. Hobbits from the Shire. Yeah, it was Pippin. Yeah. Pippin. Yeah, that it's was also his real the name. fastest bird on earth. So. Um, and then that guy, when he left Tyrannosaurus Rex, he formed a band called Shagrat, which was which is named after <laughs> I think it's an orc and also an orc in, in Lord of the Rings. But what's what's what really a great name? Yeah, Shagrat. What's what I really think yeah, is kind of go. interesting about this is, and it becomes more apparent as the band transforms into the band we're talking about tonight. But even at this point. Mark Bolin is while it's all this pastoral Tolkien stuff, he still puts in dashes of rock and roll in this. There's like an undercurrent, like there's a little Gene Vincent thrown in here, a little Chuck Berry thrown in there. There's this attitude that that I think uh, permeates those songs. Well, um, we didn't talk about he was heavily impacted by Elvis and Donovan. I mean, uh, Dion. Yeah, yeah. That, that too, but he did see Elvis like everybody else did, and it's so interesting what he said about the guitar. He wasn't amazed by watching Elvis play the guitar. He was amazed about the guitar as a prop. Yep. Yeah. And that to me that was a big giveaway. This this is a guy who's into visual stuff maybe more than the sound. Yeah. I th- I think that's true and that may if you think about glam that's kind of a key component of it as well. Well, um, what do you have left if you take away the phrasing and the and the glitter and yeah. all that? There's there's not a lot. Well, yeah. uh, unless you've got Mick Ronson playing with you. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, I mean, Mick Ronson probably he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. He, I bet he could do a pure Prairie League album. I, be, I bet he could too. <laughs> um, what what's what's funny about Tyrannosaurus Rex was at the time they're a duo. Took still has his full drum kit, and but they're living together and they can't pay the rent, so he sells it to pay the rent. And then they start busking, and as he he quote quote or a quote I read by him, he says, "As it happens, Parabongos is all we needed." So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's what they end up doing. Later on, as the band starts recording more and more albums, he and they do start to introduce. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, the name changes where things happen." No, they introduced electric electric instruments yeah. prior to that he starts playing the bass he starts arranging like he's in charge of the arranging the song well, they both start play, switching off on bass yeah don't they? yeah and, um and so the songs get a little bit more interesting at, at first it's like the, those first albums 
Do you ever see that Saturday Night Live skit where Kevin Nealon and Kevin Bacon are Mm-mm. playing musical partners and the only thing that the Kevin Bacon character would do was clap? But and Kevin Nealon would do all the singing and actually play the guitar and everything, and it would just be Kevin Bacon clapping. But That's then funny. they then they split. <laughs> Kevin Nealon's character had a great career, and then Kevin Bacon tried to do, do a solo, solo clap, do a solo clap album. That's, That's kind of how I thought that <laughs> <laughs> that when I first started, when I first heard. Tyrannosaurus Rex with the bongos. With the bongo. this, oh, this, this, this is unnecessary. This, but that guy, that guy was did. super talented. He was talented. And, he and, got better. And very, better. very much like his, uh, you know, he had somebody that could help sort of do things that Mark Bolton, like he found somebody that could be the strengths to Mark Bolton's weaknesses in terms of arranging and stuff. We got to talk about John Peel because John Peel is the reason why this band uh, ends up getting on the radar of Tony Visconti and ends up getting signed and, and uh, I forgot about, yeah. John Peel is a radio DJ and he's uh, pretty important to a lot of musicians throughout the, their career in the UK. But in particular, this one, he was a big fan of Toronto source Rex and in particular, Mark Bullen. He was, he thought that he represented something like this hippie counterculture thing that he wanted to share with the masses. So he he's playing some of those singles I played earlier. He's talking about Tyrannosaurus Rex on his radio show, which is very popular. He's driving them to their gigs because they don't have transportation. Like He's a big, important character who ends up later on, and we'll talk about it when we get to it, splitting off because of what they do on this album. It turns him off, and we'll talk about that. But because of John Peel... That's how Tony Visconti gets gets together. You know, I forgot to talk about another connection. Tony, Tony, Tony. Tony, Tony. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Joe, Joe Boyd. You know, Joe Boyd. Joe Boyd. Yeah, we talked about him in a recent episode. The Nick Drake episode. He yeah. was the producer for the first two Nick Drake albums. He was also the producer for those early couple of those early Sid Barrett Pink Floyd singles. Yeah. So Bolin signs with Black Hill Inter- uh, so, Enterprise. You yeah. should not get him to produce. Your oh albums. yeah, because because something bad will happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, he uh, so Boland signs with Black Hill Enterprises, which at the time was Pink Floyd's management company. This is when Sid Barrett was still in the band, and he's attracted to them because of Sid Barrett being in the band. He felt the connection there. He was their very first non-Floyd client. Joe Joe Boyd, because he he was you know the producer at the time for for the Floyd. He ends up producing some early. Mark Bolin songs as well. Hmm. So forgot to mention that. But since yeah. we're talking about him moving moving into Black Hill Enterprises, that's where he meets June Child, who ends up marrying later, becoming June Bolin. Hmm. She was a secretary for Black Hill. That's right. Um, yeah. So they, they actually, uh, she got fired because one of the managing partners came home after being on vacation and found her in bed with Mark Bolin. And so she, f- they fired her, and then of course Mark Bolin left because his wife wasn't working there anymore, but or his girlfriend at the time, I guess. Anywho, so they love conquers all be- because of, like I said, because of John Peel, Tony Visconti uh, hears he's hearing T Rex a- after about a little bit of a year playing with Denny Cordell. As we mentioned, he was he was mentoring with Denny Cordell. He becomes friends with Denny Lane, and Denny Lane tells Tony Visconti, "You need to go find your own guy." You know, you've been doing stuff for, for Cordell. You need to go find your own, your own band. And so the first night he goes out to see Toronto Rex, who were playing around the corner from 
their their offices and he's blown a bit away by what he sees. And uh, going back to the um, bravado, so he goes up to Mark Bullen after the show and says, hey, tells him who he is, tells him who he works for. Of course, Mark Bullen heard of Denny Cordell and he said, you know, I'm interested. I'd like to produce you guys. <laughs> and Mark Bullen goes, well, we've already had about, you know, eight, eight other guys come in to talk about us recording us. In fact, John Lennon, who's starting his own label called Grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> is uh you know the opposite of apple i guess yeah is uh is I also really story. really interested yeah. in us and uh come to find out the only producer that was interested in him was tony visconti none of that uh, none of that none of that happened <laughs> but the following morning they show up at their offices at 10 o'clock in the morning toronto Rex does they call him from a payphone. uh i think tony visconti although he did tell him to stop by may have been a little surprised that they were so early and he asked cordell he said hey can these guys come up and do you mind so they go up and they essentially redo their set list from the night before they lay a carpet down on the floor. They sit down on the floor and they play their set list <laughs> yeah. from the night before. And uh, according to Visconti, Denny Cordell wasn't necessarily that impressed, but he said, if you're interested in them, let's give it a shot. So so I heard Visconti said he thought that Bolin was a genius. Like he's one of the, he just saw sure genius coming out of it. Yeah. Him. Yeah. I know there was, it was raw, but. No, it's he. He also very, said at the time, no, but nobody wrong. wanted to touch Bolin because he was so odd. And one of the things was odd, and we <laughs> heard it in one of those songs, is that vibrato he does, that real high pitched vibrato, yeah. and, rapid. And he found out that this is how he came to sing like that. He he would listen to Bessie Smith forty fives at seventy eight <laughs> RPM and sing along and sing along with them. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, I'll tell you something funny. I think I've said this before, but. Accidentally put Springsteen down, long play. I put it down oh, forty five. The price you pay. Yeah. I put it down at forty five, and I swear it sounds just like Stevie Nicks. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I did the opposite one time. I put um, even in the quietest moments by Supertramp. I had a forty five of it, and I put it on uh, thirty three. Oh, that's one of the most beautiful songs. Sounds like Sinatra. That's hilarious. Well, and then what's really kind of a cool, I mean, this was a partnership. Visconti, I think, produced the VAT. I mean, he produced all four of the Tyrannosaurus Rex albums. I think yeah. most of the T Rex albums. Yeah. And, uh, and he did eight. Um, instrumental with the way that bounce band sounded. And we were talking offline earlier about what a cool guy he seems. He's to an be. amazing, yeah. uh, he, a guy from New York, he was educated in music. He played in, he plays a lot of different instruments and he's played a lot of different instruments in different bands. He played in a jazz band. He knows how to play piano really well and he knows how to arrange and he knows how to do string arrangements. Um, he's a really important guy. If, if we could do a podcast on producers, I would, you'd be one of the guys. Would, be, would there be any others? <laughs> Well, I just, I, I there's, there's this, there's this really great podcast, uh, on, or a Rhino podcast. And yes, I'm talking about another podcast, Rhino Records podcast, where they interview him and they talk specifically about Electric Warrior. Did we even mention that was the album we're talking about tonight? <laughs> Hopefully it will say that on, on the webpage. Yeah. Anyway, he talks about it and he's so just, yeah. There's no ego. It's not that he's nonchalant about it. He realizes how how good it is, but he 
downplays his contribution. Well, he talks about so it as much. a partnership. And he yeah. said early on, I think he learned this from Denny Cordell, the way to be a producer is to try to listen to the artists and figure out what they want and help them figure out that vision rather than go in and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Isn't that you what know? Todd Rundgren That is the Todd Rundgren, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but he just seems like a really cool guy. He's, he's now on my list. Not that anyone cares. My list of people I'd like to have a beer with. Yeah. So if you're listening, Tony, give us a call. <laughs> And he yeah, uh, produced free beer, Al- Tony. He produced right. Alejandro Escovedo, which is which why we're experts. Why we're experts. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they release their first single called Deborah. Uh, this is uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's released in 1968, and it hits the top 40, tops out at number 34 in the top 40 UK charts, and it stays in the charts for seven weeks. There's those bongos. Yeah, but it's, and that, but it's a little less. Yeah, and that vibrato is a little not less as bad as, uh, Yeah, a lot of the other stuff. It, it's it's much more. It's less sprawling. I'd almost sound like he's trying to make a pop song. Yeah. So they uh, before they the name changed, they end up releasing what four albums, right? The right. My, my people were fair and had sky in their hair, but now they're content to wear stars in their brows. That's a Tolkien reference, I think. And boy, what it just rolls off the tongue, yeah, that title, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm going to go pick that. Uh, that. I want this album. Peaked at number 15 on the UK charts. Prophet Seers and Sages, The Angels of the Ages. That is, uh, that also, I, I, I'm sure charted. I don't have what it where it hit. But, you know, Visconti kind of down, and we talked about it briefly, downplays the whole, oh, they changed their name to T-Rex and the electric guitarist came out. He said that he was actually buddies with both Bolin and Bowie, and they used to come over to his house because he was one of the few people in 1968 that had a stereo phonograph player. Like, he would play stereo, you know, that wasn't real... real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, play jazz records. Yeah. Instead of mono. Yeah, and so uh, so they would come and they'd listen to records, and he also happened to have two electric guitars and a bass. And so the three of them would jam to old rock and roll songs together up there. And so Bolin was always interested in interjecting that element and um and it's around that time between the second and the third Tyrannosaurus Rex albums that he buys his first Stratocaster. It's a white Stratocaster, right, I Stratocaster, think. Yeah. And he starts well, that what Paisel shape. Yeah. Well he bought it. It wasn't it Sid Barrett's? Oh I don't know. I, I hadn't heard that. Sid, he did get it from Sid Barrett's. Sid Barrett's was, was mirrored. Well yeah. I think this is another one that he did huh. own. Yeah, I did I not think, know I think that. he bought it either There's from Sid connection. Barrett or it was yeah. Sid Barrett. That's it's interesting. Got fat. Uh, how did I not know that? <laughs> But uh, so that he's he you know he starts to introduce the electric guitar at that time. So that's after their second album, and uh, that's when Took starts playing the bass as well. Mm-hmm. And then they release their third album, Unicorn, in nineteen sixty nine. And then prior to their last album, A Beard of Stars, he and Peregrine Took end up calling it quits, mainly because he Bolin was not he was clean. He didn't do drugs or anything but took was a big time druggie yeah. and it was well, he start- got busted right yeah and i, I remember uh, the the interview i saw it said when you got busted back then it was shameful it wasn't uh oh yeah it's just uh, a rocker dude on but paul mccartney going through and mm-hmm. yeah. and and then also uh bowling wasn't let any of his songs on the records 
Yeah, that was the thing. He said that was the, maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. Was he said, "I'd like to, I'd like to, I have some songs I'd like to do," and it's the whole sort of. Uh, yeah, well, we put the, let's put this on the refrigerator with a magnet. <laughs> we can look next, at it. It's kind of the jellyfish sure. way of doing business, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so when they recorded the fourth album, Beard, Beard of Stars, he gets Mickey Finn to join as the drummer at the time. And he starts putting on electric guitars, and he starts working on the rock sound. Yeah, so anyway. So and this that, is the one that has a swan song on it. Well, none of their... That was a single. That wasn't released that's on right, any albums. And, and that's the, the thing that Tony Visconti says. And I, I, I don't know how I feel about this. I think I kind of agree with it, and maybe I also don't agree with it. He said that Bolin was adamant about not making people have to buy an album to get a single. Like he didn't he re- release singles. You get that. You buy an album; they're all new songs. There's not the singles not obviously. On he wasn't listening to our podcast, <laughs> right? But uh, I, you know, I kind of dig that having song uh, non album singles. You know, it's I I appreciate the part where you don't have to buy, buy the album. song twice. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, yeah. um, how many times have I bought the song twice? So uh, then the, there's, there's, there's sort of a sea change, and the band for their next album shortens their name to T-Rex. Which they, is short for... Tyrannosaurus Rex. Which means... Thunder... No, that's Dinosaur. King of King the, the Tyrannic Lizards. That's right. It's so, been a while since I've studied my <laughs> dinosaurs. <you're> Latin. <laughs> I tell you what, you're this is not an easy band to research because you're led in all sorts of you directions. Yeah. It's like jellyfish. When you look up jellyfish, you get jellyfish. You look it's up T-Rex. Like like, yeah. You get taken all sorts of directions. <laughs> yeah, Doug went back in time and recorded an actual Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> I did. Um, and here's, you know, there's a lot of controversy around that. Was T-Rex primarily a hunter or primarily a scavenger, scavenger that used yeah. to size to push people off their own kill? Oh, and, yeah, it would be uh, tough to hunt with those little arms, I would think. You yeah. know, they had, well, we're going to talk about the little arms a little later. <laughs> um, but Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, next to the turkey vulture, mm-hmm. the Tyrannosaurus rex had the largest nasal capacity of any Huh. That's ever lived. Well, there you go. So that Maybe makes that's, us think it's a scavenger. That's interesting. So things you learn on this is Biotech. So, do you know where the name T Rex came from? Why they shortened it? Somebody takes credit for it. I, I did read this, uh, but it wasn't me, so I didn't remember. To- Tony Visconti. What he would do is whenever he was blocking out stuff in his musical calendar to deal with the band. He didn't want to write Tyrannosaurus Rex yeah, I don't down blame him, over and over and over and over again. So he, so he abbreviated for T-Rex and evidently Mark Bullen wasn't real happy with that and called him out on it. And so uh, Visconti goes, okay, well, why don't you write it down then four times in a row and see how you feel? So he didn't immediately change his name based on that, but it stuck, it stuck a chord and eventually, I guess, because of the sea change, he decided that they would, they would do it. Well, that's... Um, the exact same reason we started calling you T. Yeah. No one wanted to write out Tony anymore. <laughs> well, and yeah. So anyway, um, so they released their, um, the, the album T-Rex. But before they do that, uh, they released a single called Ride the White Swan. Ride 
the white swan that the people love in Belgium, where you head on, did you come to run? That's a good song. That's one of my favorites they've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, that and that a, became famous on what program was it where they built a white, white swan for him to ride? What? <laughs> what? Yeah. After after uh, they started their decline, uh, some program had them on and he's up on top of a white swan singing it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, so that brings us to. Well, um, a couple of a couple of things before we get to the, the way Alma we're talking about. But so. Um, that that song is is pretty big. It's huge, but it only hits number two in the UK top forty. Um, there's How come twos only. Well, <laughs> two sounds pretty good to me. I'd be okay with two. Um, okay, number Sorry. two. Uh, anyway, <laughs> these days <laughs> there's a, there's no drums. There's no drums on it. <laughs> it's just got tambourine and hand claps, which you know I'm a big fan of, and the rhythm is played. By Mark Boland uh, puts a capo on the fourth fret of the of a bass and just hits a pick up pick against the bass. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of a bass with a capo. <laughs> pop right off, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, then they release the T Rex album, but um, between that album and the one we're talking about, they release a song called Hot Love. And what's interesting about that song? <laughs> anything that who gets credit for the lyrics on that one? <laughs> well, uh, you guys, you guys know, you guys know who's on that singing back background on that song, right? I said uh, David Bowie, Flo and Eddie. Oh, that's right, Flo and Eddie. Yeah. And who are Flo and Eddie Jam? For those who listening, who oh, may not they know, they are. Uh, or it's I don't know why they go by Flo and Eddie, but they're, they've been on so many albums. They've been on everybody's album from, I think, Springsteen to uh, the Psychedelic Furs. I mean, Todd Rundgren. It's Howard Kalin and Mark Volman. But who yeah. who are they? What band were they in? Stevie, Stevie. They were in the Turtles. Oh, that's oh. right. Oh. I always forget about the Turtles. Now, forget what, about that. The yes. connection here is they were, I think they were touring the UK with Zappa because they played with Zappa's band at this time. And the thing that connects Bolin and Zappa is they both loved that old doo-wop music. Yeah. Zappa loves yeah. that stuff. And so it was Me like a, a natural, it was a natural fit. So Flo and Eddie's on that song. He's all, they're also on a song on the album we're talking about tonight. Yeah. Yep, they are. They sing a lot of the backup on this show. And that's a connection. Like, Who was it that we did that wrote a turtle song? Oh, a Warren Zevon. Right. Warren Zevon. <laughs> and I think Flo and Eddie might have been on another album we talked about, and I don't remember. But um, this is at the point when Hot Love comes out, this is at the point they expand the band beyond two people. They get Steve Curry, Jones on bass, and Bill Fifield on drums. Now, Fifield was in a band called Legend, and so Boland decides, you're going to be Bill Legend. <laughs> Renames him, and that's the name he's gone by. He went by from that point forward. Jeez. But this the, this expanded lineup lets him play this stuff live. Uh -huh, like they couldn't yeah. do it otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this bigger production starts creeping in. And uh, as Visconti said, when Hot Love came out, they knew immediately we hit a sound. This is what yeah, T Rex it really sounds is, like, exactly. and that's a number one hit. Yeah. Yes. And it is yes. a, it's yeah, very portentous about and, what's about to come. And what's 
kind of the other thing about that is his appearance on top of the pops to perform that song is when glam was introduced to the British. That's why you put the uh, glitter on. Well, uh, that's right. Chalita That's right. Secunda, who was Tony Secunda's wife, because he was managing at the time, was the one who went up and said, here, and put the put the glitter on his eyes before he went on on stage. So he's got the glitter. He's got the curly hair. He's wearing a satin outfit. Yeah. And he's out there strutting around. And if you and, see it, he's like the only one dressed like that. Everybody else is just Yeah. Yeah. And um, so that's sort of the announcement that this is this yeah. is the direction we're well, going. Well, what did they say? That's the uh, beginning of... Uh, Glam rock, right there. Yeah. Right, yep. and so they do a mini tour in the U in the U.S. at this time, right before they they're, they're uh, the you know the album we're talking about. And the reason why that's important is because they get a uh, Visconti gets a call from the label, and they're like, uh, "Hey, this Hot Love song is really, really doing well. Uh, you got a follow up?" He's like, uh, "No." <laughs> So they end up, he and Mark Bullen end up flying to LA. And uh, according to Visconti, this is where they record Get It On and Mambo's Son. And Flo and Eddie are in LA. So they look them up and Flo and Eddie are on it as well. And so what happens is during this tour, whenever they have spare time, they start recording the song. So this, I believe, Electric Warrior was recorded in four different studios yeah. in three different countries. That's the diversity that we're looking well, it's, for. It's, that's another connection. It's recorded part of it's at Trident, right? And and uh, I'm sorry, three different cities, not Trident, countries. New York. No, no it's, it's London. London. So oh, it, what? I'm sorry. No, that's, that's where Bowie recorded. That's right. Yeah. And so it was three different cities, not countries. So it's L.A., New York, and London, and that's four different, different studios. Country. L.A. is a different yeah, country. country. That's true. Yeah. They so and Visconti has to carry the tapes around. They don't have digital files, so he's carrying the tapes around with them. And it's and they're not light, by the way. No, they're, no, they're, they're, they're very me, they're sixteen yeah. track tapes it too. Reminds yeah. me of Ernest Shackleton and the the <laughs> yeah, crew the of the uh, endurance, endurance carrying those giant plates of yeah. photographs through the Arctic. Yeah, Antarctic. and another thing that those things every time they get played, yeah. they stretch out a little bit. So you have to be real. That's why there's so many pulley or so many. If you look at it, there's like little pulleys and stuff on it to actually keep it taut. From, taut. Yeah. One of the things he talks about in an interview, Tony Visconti, is how he and Bolin realized that they've recorded in three different cities and four different studios, and this album needs to sound like it's unified. Yeah. So how it did they? Does. That's pretty cool. Well, how did they do it? What they did was it took them ten days to mix it down, but what they did is they put slapback on the vocals and the drums, and they used auto double tracking. Do you know what that is? It's I, oh, I always called that slap. Is well, they they would have they'd have two two tape recorders. One was at um, was stationary, and the other one was on a variable speed. And so it gives the songs this kind of swooshy, swooshy undertone, yeah. and it's um, it's so what, it's not too precise, right? But it's like a thirty milli, He said it's a thirty millisecond um, slapback. It's That's essentially right. what uh, Lennon's doing on "I Am the Walrus." That's what his voice is doing on that. And so they did. So it gives it kind of a what they call a phasing. Effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they did that, and then uh, so that's mostly like when you think Boland's vocals will double track, they are sometimes, but mostly it's that slapback effect that's going on there. There's a couple of times where you can tell it's real double track. Right, right, and yeah. and we can talk about those. He learned that he learned that uh, AD, ADT thing from Glenn Johns when he was working. Uh, yeah, doing you. stuff. 
but so yeah, they they did these kind of little studio tricks to make the album sound as unified as possible. And it really, as you said, Doug, it's kind of fascinating that it was. I mean, because you know, studios it's very unified. Yep. I might say it's one of the most a little more album. unified than I care for. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a, yeah, there's times when it doesn't need to be as unified as it is, but it's still a yeah. One thing I want to say though, when everybody everybody talks about the switch being the sound of this album, Electric Warrior being kind of this is why this is the first glam rock album. Yeah. But it also and I know there's elements of this, but it's really the subject matter is different than any T Rex album prior to this as well. There's not it's not it's, steeped yeah, it's not in unicorn, the elves and the stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that's it, Absent, yeah, it, it very just absent. Disappears. Yeah, and yeah. the first album, except for one of the songs, the first album has it on there. This album, yeah, this album doesn't really. And so I know I don't. I haven't seen anybody really talk about that. But to me, that's a is an important switch as anything is getting away from that sort of Tolkien esque elf type, you know, yeah. very yeah. It, writing. You're getting out of the the mythology, and you're getting into this. And you're leaving. They should have called this album "Leaving Middle Earth." <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and it's it's what the subject matter focuses on then is sex, yeah, pretty much. It's pretty I mean, much, it's, yeah. It's not love. Oh, yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> there's, I guess, so sure. Um, I don't know. Get it on. Is that really? Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys know who? I, I I'm not a big fan. I'm not. I shouldn't say I'm not a big fan. The cover is not striking to me. But I love the cover. I think the cover is really cool, and I think it looks so different than the music it's hypnosis did it who is the people who did uh Pink floyd the um and the zeppelin album we talked about that. Bolin yeah. that bowling with door. a gibson standing behind a, st- a stack. stack of a uh, marshall yep. yeah and uh it well, looks I like perfect. i think it's you're exactly huh because that that i don't that think sounds I, like a I don't mar- think I, like, I think because the guitar sounds like it's going through a marshall stack I think well i mean it does it. but when i see a stack of marshalls i expect more aggressive noisy and in your face guitars and uh i got a different view on marshalls but that's yeah. <laughs> i think a new young one <laughs> sorry but i yeah. said no young so we can put that in <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. All right. Ladies and oh, there's, gentlemen, there's Neil Young is our number one yeah. downloaded. Uh, by not by even people, a slim margin, a by giant people who margin. don't listen <laughs> to the whole podcast. Uh, <laughs> so we've talked about some of the players on this, Rick Wakeman being one of them, Flo and Eddie being the others. Mm-hmm. There's another guy on this, Ian McDonald. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is he British? He's, He's British. a, a he British guy named Ian. He was one of the founding members of King Crimson. He was a founding member and of King Crimson, and he went on to play with Foreigner. He founded Foreigner as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was a he was a sax player for King Crimson. Yeah, he played a lot of instruments, but uh, yeah, he was a sax player and flautist for King Crimson. And what is he? He plays saxophone on this. And then who's Burt Collins? I don't know. He Burt plays Collins. the yeah, flugelhorn. He, he's from the United States, and I think he's worked with one of our best flugelhorn players. <laughs> I think he'd worked with Biscani before in in bands. Oh uh, yeah, in New York. Yeah, so. he's played with a lot of jazz and soul people. So. Yeah, um, but flugelhorn is uh, what? it's like a trumpet. Only no, deeper. that's what uh, the guy from uh, King of the Hill plays. Um, oh, Bill? Huh? <laughs> Bill? Oh, you're talking no. about uh, uh, the, yeah. Yeah, oh, what is what that guy's name? name? He's not the king Bill? of yacht rock. Oh my God, what is his name? He's yeah, he's oh, uh, Chuck Mangione. Chuck <laughs> that's right, Chuck <laughs> Mangione. <laughs> Chuck Mangione, the king of the fugal horn. 
Oh, that song. Oh, Lord. Oh, um, we won't be doing that, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this, next April 1st. Uh, I don't know if this is the appropriate time to talk about this, but this album was huge. Yes, it was. It was. It was number one. I mean, it, it's funny. I didn't realize, again, being American, how big this was. I mean, people talked about T-Rex in the same breath that they talked about the Beatles in terms of their... Oh, their... They said they were bigger than the Beatles when this started. Yeah. It's And uh, it's... It's so weird researching this and find out they're, they're bit, being put ahead of Led Zeppelin and the Who yeah. and all these other bands yeah. that are in in the United States loom much larger. But yeah, these guys were enormous and they had uh, what is it Tex um, T Rex? What is it? I'm trying to say. Oh, what? Yeah, that. like be- like Beatlemania. Beatlemania it was, was T Rex. What was it? T Rex. T Rex. No. <laughs> Terexia. Oh, God. Terexia. I can't read Latin backwards. So we're about to enter the period of T Rex to see. <laughs> and what, what what was T Rex to see, Doug? That was, have you ever heard of Beatlemania? Uh, vaguely. Yeah. So that's the, that's the same thing, except instead of the Beatles, it's, it's like uh, IBM mania. So we're going into the album. You're the host, aren't you, Doug? <laughs> I was when we started. <laughs> so. You fellas ready to get into this record? Uh, yeah. I, I am, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to hop into T-Rex's album, and it's called Electric Warrior. Is this because he went electric? I think they just had a really cool album cover and decided to put that on. And put no, that I, th- on. I, think there's, I think there's a concerted effort to make this kind of a, a whole package, if you will. The subject matter's different. The the picture on the cover of the album is different. It's not pa- if you look it's at the cover this picture compared to pastiche well, look it, at the yeah. cover of the first T Rex album. Yeah. It looks it you know, they're sitting in a field or whatever, he and uh, Mickey Finn. Yeah. Um got makeup on and it's just yeah. This looks like uh this looks like an album that would have been marketed five or six years after this album was marketed. It reminds me a lot of the Transformer cover. Yeah. You know, it's very yeah. stark, but um, anyway, yeah, and I think Electric Warrior was just part of that whole packaging. Well, and uh, still, I think the I don't I don't think the cover matches the album very well at all because it looks like someone's about to do well. Guitar guy. There's a couple so, of things that I, I it's it's like a guitar like what you'd expect is a guitar guy. It's gonna. I have a question for tear you. Tear things up, yeah, Doug. And Jam, you can answer it too, but mainly Doug because you're the one who brings this phrase up all the time. Which is a guitar album. Mm-hmm. Is this a guitar album? No, I think it's very not. Well, okay, I, I I have this opinion about it. It's not a guitar album in the same way that we've been talking about other guitar albums, like Television or is it a, is it a guitar album in the sense that Ziggy Stardust in this I, I, is that is that an al- a guitar album? Uh, no, no. But I think what's what's why I I ask that question is because the guitar is doing things on this album that are, that aren't normally done. I mean, there's sounds coming out. There's things. It's front and center in a way that's not showy, but is showy. If you know what I mean, it's not showy in terms of technical ability, but it's showy in the sense of what it's the sounds it's making. So I was just curious if that the would guitar count or does not. take precedence almost uh, over almost every other instrument, except for the drums. I, here's yeah. Here's what what I think. Oh, yeah, you're I, right. yeah. When I think of a guitar album, I think of an album the guitar players are going to 
clear the deck yeah. and say, I got to hear this over and over and over again. This is amazing what these guys are doing. Yeah, Derek there's only the one Allman Brothers yeah. or uh, Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, these <laughs> these albums. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Allman Brothers, Derek and the Dominoes. <laughs> Insert or, band Tony doesn't like. <laughs> well, television. Or, or television. I okay, mean, there's two, a band I love. Two guitar players on television. Or, or the Matthew Sweet album. Girlfriend, I, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, but when you hear those, it's it well, it's, it's a, they yeah. don't necessarily interrupt the song, but they do make you think, okay, this I is want, I want to hear I, the guitar. Here's, here's the easiest thing with YouTube do you hear the album uh, and want to watch want to see the guitar player? Okay, yeah, that's a fair, that's a like, fair point. Yeah, like Southside Johnny, uh. No, I want to see Southside. I want to see the horns. Mark Boland, you're not looking to see him Mark play Mark Boland, and f- I, I don't want to. I mean, <laughs> good point. Yeah. In fact, uh, well, I, I saw anyway. Jackson Brown playing steel guitar today on YouTube. But that was and cool. He looked pretty competent. I, was I think he's a pretty decent steel guitarist. Well, I, I guess so. No he had he probably had a good teacher. He played. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he played steel on one of the albums we talked about. Yeah, I know. Oh, the Warren Zevon album. I think steel, he steel or on. slide. No, he plays steel. He's no. Well, I'm sorry. I was talking about uh, slide bottleneck. Oh, oh okay. But yeah, anyway, he plays I, a. Road, I said steel because yeah. he had a steel. I think he plays steel on that Warren Zevon album. Wow, I would believe it. Anyway, we're way off. So no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I I would agree. I, this because it's the guitars are not the focal point, right? And when you're listening to Derek and the Dominoes, when you're listening to television, I mean, there's just so no, much. No, I get, I get it. I was just when I was listening to it today again, I was I was kind of enamored by the little sounds it was making. I am so I'm, I wanted I'm to an, I wanted to ask that question yeah. just to get some clarity. I'm enamored it. with the guitar playing on this album. Yeah, it's not it's that. not technically brilliant, but it's it's interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, sorry. We have this album before us, ladies and gentlemen. Track one, side one, Mambo Sun. I love those. We're just talking about guitars. The guitar playing is so like slinky on this, and it's just well, it's that's a great it. that's a great word, slinky, because it's uh, it. I heard I read someplace, and I thought it was a perfect description for the song. They called it a sexually charged strut, you know. <laughs> and and I think that's I think that's an absolute perfect description of the song. I think you're absolutely right. Slinky is a, maybe even better thing. I hear more than anything else. Are the background vocals? That's exactly. And that's another thing. I got my yeah. It, is I'm, that's I'm, the, I'm thinking. This is the most interesting part of this song. Who thought right. of that noise? And that and has why been does used, it work so good? But and Bowie employs it sounds, that. Uh, well, who else employs it? Is uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yeah, yeah. Stole this completely. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the big elephant in the room tonight, JM. You and I talked about it briefly before we started. Is that we had to kind of flip our mindset about every, we'd listen to this and go, instead of this is ripping off Bowie, how much Bowie ripped off. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. T-Rex, yeah. Especially this album, you know, yeah, and those vocals. I mean, yeah. Bowie does those vocals in spades and in, in subsequent yep. albums. Yep. 
and and, uh, and that really chugging guitar he uses yeah. off and on. And there's certain songs on this album that sound exact like he just lifted it. Well, one of the things, yeah, and that that is definitely, and it's going to come up later, but that is definitely a Les Paul because it's yeah. got that sort of Les Paul pop on it, and um, you know, and if you got them. One of the things about Marshalls that people don't, I mean, it, it's got a great distorted sound, but it also has really unusual sound when it's not used at high decibels and it's not, um, it, it's got this like really nice kind of slapback effect on it. And that's. And when you say Marshalls, we're talking about Marshall amps, <laughs> amplifiers. Yeah. Amplifiers, yeah. Not headphones. Not headphones. <laughs> um. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, without uh, a camera, I have Marshall headphones on right now. Yeah. I think it's funny. The lyrics of the song are basically different ways to describe this guy's yearning for a girl. Like, yeah. My favorite yeah. being, I, I got a powder keg leg <laughs> and my wig's all poofed for you. I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> the uh, That's the theme of the album. Yeah. And then there's a line, I got stars in my beard. We talked about that. That's in reference to the mm-hmm. Tyr- Tyrannosaurus Rex LP, which was the last album they did before the name change was called Beard of Stars. This is one of the few songs where he's, where Visconti says he's double tracking his vocals. Mm-hmm. And the thing he talks about Mark Boland's ability to do that is how precise he was. He says that he was almost a mirror image. Like he'd never, he's never worked with anybody who was that precise in laying down a vocal track that was so close to the one they That's done interesting. That must be natural because it doesn't yeah. seem like he would work at that. And Flo, Flo and Eddie are on this. This was one of the songs they recorded in LA. So. And, up next, Cosmic Dancer. I dance myself right at the womb. I dance myself right at the womb. Is it strange to dance so soon? I dance myself right at the womb. I like that song a lot. I, I I like it. And one of the things I like about it is it's so preposterous. It's <laughs> completely preposterous. It, yes. It just cracks me up. This baby coming out of the womb. Yeah. Did I doubt? Oh, am I out too soon? <laughs> you know, it, it's what's what's funny about this song is that you know Mark Boland's on record as saying he's the cosmic dancer. But you read people's interpretations online, and I think people and this is kind of I think a general with this band people read a whole lot more into these lyrics than are really there because they want to give this guy some some depth. They, want, I, I, they want there to be depth yeah. and shallow water but it's it shouldn't be and it, but that's the thing that i'm talking about. this is the perfect example of where bolin and bowie are different where bowie is talking about, i'm an alligator i'm a mama papa papa coming for you it's a great line which is a great Love line but line. it doesn't what the hell but it We've had a lot of alligators lately. Yeah, I think there's an alligator in this album. There's an alligator in uh, Steve Miller. But when I'm dancing when I was twelve, yeah, why twelve? Why twelve? All the other ones make sense because they rhyme. Yeah. Well, maybe that's when he first because he was eleven when he formed his first band. Maybe that's in reference to that. But he was dancing. This is a song. You listen to the song, and this is where you can hear like. Everything that came after that was influenced. This song yeah. is you can hear Bowie. Oh no, you can, love you're not. Oh alone. man, I mean you could just you, when the phrasing that oh, we yeah. talked about earlier. Yeah. This is the ultimate, and it's Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. Yeah, exactly. And it's just this simple acoustic guitar, 
and, and drums and strings. And, and but yeah. that's what that's one of the things that I was talking about earlier that I think glam does very well is like the strings are used. They, they're not used to be syrupy. Yeah, they're they used add, to they add, add something like the floor. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and they're different every time. And the, like the, the cellos come in. On right, 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 right. Yeah. No, it's it's good. It's good. Um, the one thing that we didn't get to hear is the guitar solo on this song, which is backwards. And I was yeah. fascinated yeah. listening to Tony Visconti talk about how they. I mean, you guys probably know this, but I didn't know, really know how they do so. It's evidently pretty difficult. It's it's not uncommon when you do that to record over something you've already recorded the front way because when you flip it, what you do is you end up flipping the tape and recording it, recording it backwards. But he was talking about how they flipped it and then they put a chalk mark on it. So they're listening to in the studio and when that mark comes up is when Bolin would play his guitar solo normally, right. but it's being recorded backward or it's being recorded forward. But when you flip it again, it's backwards. And he said that that allowed him to hear the song backwards and get the feel of it. So the solo matched what he was hearing backwards. So the thought was he would match what when you flipped it. And they put two tracks down just in case. I, that's fascinating to me. And then when you listen to it, it, it sounds great. Yeah. It, it does. sounds great. It's, it's really appropriate. It, it really is. And, and more so than most uh, backwards yeah. guitar solos, right? And, yeah. it, and I think everything has everything to do with uh, Visconti talking about his... This is the one thing, not control as in I'm doing this, but his preciseness and making sure that they weren't going to record over the wrong track, that they knew exactly where the thing... Like, he had everything lined up and that mm-hmm. that that's why this works so well, you know? Well, yeah. it does. It does work and the, uh, it's... The it, delivery bothers me a little bit. Really? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Oh, I, I love it. I love everything about this song. I, I like it because there is nothing grounded in reality. <laughs> it is so over the top. But and again, it I sounds to me like he's like taking he's himself seriously. Dancing about five yeah. feet off the ground, throwing flowers everywhere. And it's, it's just... Well, and, and go, going to the thing that I said, people online, one of the things when they said when it goes back to, so he dances in the tomb and then it goes back to dancing out the womb while well, he's talking about reincarnation. Oh, no, Lord. he's just repeating the line again. No, That's what he's doing. He's just, yeah. being, he's just being marvelous. Just yeah. leave him alone. That's quit right. trying to dump And, and, and the drums on this song are oh, so... the drums are amazing. They're so far up in the mix and they don't make... Yeah. It doesn't sound like anything else. It's so, it's so <laughs> it, great. It really I love it. The drums are I great. really like this song I a lot. That's a stand dad. Well, we've talked about the drums are a standout oh (laughs) up next is a a uh a noun i don't know it's jeepster now this is this was a single this was a single yeah i think it did pretty well didn't it So Jeepster is a Jeep. <laughs> it's just, I, it's, I guess it was a slang at that point. Yeah. And I don't know if this song is about him being somebody who's shooting for somebody out of his league because he describes the girl as a Jaguar or if it's just that a Jeepster's utilitarian. So his love is, well, you know, I have no idea what, what that I, is. I always about. thought that what's a Jeep for? Going Over anywhere. Uh, yeah. I so gotcha. She's... He's going to pursue her yeah. over all kinds of terrain. I, that makes sense. That makes I, sense. I don't know that's for a fact, but 
Um, <laughs> I've got in mind. And I'll I tell you something else. I'm not going to die on any hills trying to say that this guy was saying this or that yeah. because yeah. I don't know that he knows. Yeah, he would tell you something one day and tell you something a different yeah. day. Yeah. It, um, but it's a fun song. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a great it's song. Got that, it's got very T-Rex mm-hmm. rhythm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a single, as we mentioned. It was The B-side was Life's a Gas. It peaked at number two. On the UK singles chart, it was <laughs> got a couple of interesting stories about the single. It was released after he left the label, um, and the label released it without talking to him about it as a single. Oh, and he got really mad. And it was kept off the number one spot the initial week it was released by "Cause I Love You" by Slade, and then it never made the top spot because it was. It was it was blocked by the top spot by Ernie, the fastest smoke band in the West by Benny Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think some of the singers that had worked on previous. Yeah, they were on there. They were on there. They were on the T-Rex album or Tyrannosaurus oh, Rex album. Yeah. Well, so um, the, there's overdub cellos and bassoon on this song. This is considered one of the band's greatest songs. People oh, yeah. love this. I, I think it's one of the. It's a can. It's part of the glam canon, definitely. I um, I'm gonna play you a cover version of it, which is a connection. So hold on a second. Any idea who that is? No. It's Fish from Marillion. Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, he recorded a oh, song, not, song. Not Fish the band. Fish no, the Fish singer. from Marillion. Wow. It's, uh, it, he recorded a co- bunch of cover versions, and this was one of his well, pet, one bad. favorite songs. And so he put well, it's, it. It's kind of hard to screw this song up. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was funny. It, it I, does sound like uh, it's a Mustang Sally type of song where well, all kinds of bands could cover it. It's yeah. got that sort of rock and roll, you know, that steady beat. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, yeah. well, this whole album is really basic blues based yep. tunes. It's just four on the floor um, with that bump, 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 a T Rex chug. Yep. yep. All Not right. A chug on this album. Um, Bum, bum, bum. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Did you? I didn't until just a second. Big bomb. Anyway, uh, not thus uh, also spread Zarathustra, but we have uh, the monolith. And this is not about teaching monkeys how to kill pigs with bones. <laughs> nope. <laughs> This is cool one of the guitar. ones where I think the yeah the guitar is sounds like no other guitar that existed before. Is that him playing it? I think yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was that was cool. Yeah. The, this to me is the one song. There's others, but this is a song. Elev- this elevates to if you were going to have a 
a musical picture next to the word glam rock in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. This, this song, would be the one. this is a contender for that song. It really yep. is. Yeah, it, it's that funky slow uh, beat that reminds me yeah. of a lot of. I mean, other if you're a drummer, songs. this would be a fun, fun song to it's, play. It's so compelling too. I yeah. again, I don't know what's going on with the guitar, but it's <laughs> it's pretty great. Well, and then the vocals, the, yeah. the background vocals yeah. are just so on the whole album. Yeah. The but on this, this is one of the standouts. On I love how it starts off with mm-hmm. those background vocals, and mm-hmm. then Bolin's voice kind of comes in. It's almost just jarring. His voice is perfect. You for almost the song expect, too. yeah, you, you expect like uh, Isaac Hayes or somebody to come yeah. in, or, or Barry White coming. Oh baby, it's yeah. um, I'm just a Jeep simple. It's bit. so important how new his voice must have sounded. Oh yeah, at this mm-hmm. time and how much it was imitated after oh this. yeah but yeah. we're talking a huge number of people imitated this yeah, yeah no i think i think it's that that thing we talk about all the time about how hard it is for us to hear that because we've got all this history behind well, yeah, us and you can't again you can't get away from how bowie what bowie took from this one of, but bowie had has a much stronger voice bowie's a much yeah then without a doubt and a i think singer. he's his breadth of songwriting is that's Superior, something yeah. we'll talk about later, but, but yeah. Well, there's yeah, there's no um, there's no life on Mars in Mark Boland's catalog. No, but there's but you're right. All the all the people there's a lot of people that said, "Hey, Mark Boland can sing, I can sing too." Oh yeah, yeah I, I didn't well, thought about that, but you're right. That's probably it's one of those Dylan uh, influences yeah. that Lean Woman Blues. Weakest song on the album, really? I think so. I wish all blues sounded like this. <laughs> well, that's, I was going to say that this is—you get to see the sausage made better than any other song. And what I mean by that is, most of these songs are based on a pretty traditional blues mm-hmm. riff, mm-hmm. and this one doesn't this one hide it, doesn't it at, all. at all. Right, and all it does is just glam it up. I love how snarky Bolin sounds on this song. I don't like the the, the way that it starts off bad for me. Just that count off one, two, buckle my shoes. Like what? Why? Why? Why do well, that? Why don't just to count me? It up it's like- um, what glam rock's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just that bit we heard there where he says the way he says lightning and frightening. I I I eat that up. I think it's. it's I mean, it's. It's all fabulous, over the top. It uh, is. It's all perform- performance art. And, and it's, you compare this to Muddy Waters. Yeah. Something you go, what happened? I, I can see those. Blues. I know that's exactly what I. That's exactly what I had in my head. It's like Muddy Waters and you he know, got Halloween. Yeah, who's what, this guy? What's he? What doing? You, you need to. You need to go back and listen to the bass on this song, Jam. The bass is phenomenal on this song. I know the bass is phenomenal on this song. I, I, I'm not. I'm not dissing the bass. I'm not. I'm not dis- dissing the playing either. I'm I, kinda, I think it's it's funny to see um, a genre completely <laughs> readjusted like this. Like I said, it's uh, it it yeah. in terms of blues stuff, I like it a lot. <laughs> well, this is going to come out when I get my review. So yeah, so um, there. 
There you go. Yeah, so well, there. I mean, it, it, it's speaking what, of what snarky. Are, no, what you guys are talking about is like I I had to readjust myself a lot listening. Hey, to this is a family podcast, Jam. Yeah. Come on. Seriously, this isn't baseball. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to flip, flip that over. Uh, and it's one of the first times in a while we get to talk about. The, the lead off track on the second song. That's right. And what is it, Doug? It's track six, as they always are. It's the hit. Get it on, baby. Is this an ode to the gong show? Is he happy about... <laughs> Actually, this was before the gong show. Ah. And there's no gong in this. There's no <laughs> gong at all, but this is a almost flawless song. It is so infectious. It is... Everybody, everybody's on peak game on this song. It's the this, it's this second number one for the band It's uh, on the UK, it's, in the UK. And if, um, if you were trying to talk to someone... And tell them who T Rex was, mm-hmm. and they didn't know. This is where you would start. Yeah, I I talked about this a little bit with you, Doug, before we started. I really hate the fact that I had heard the version by Power Station so much when I was younger because it's such an inferior version of the song. It's inferior, but it's and it's almost a mirror image. And it, of it well, but it doesn't have the it doesn't have the tude, if you will. No, you know? you're right. No, and it's got, uh, when you got this, Robert this, Palmer around there in yeah. his breasted they, suit, yeah. that's Tony nailed it. The attitude of this song is yeah. really, really important. The and, old T Rex shuffle is really important, and then those that saxophone again. That that's the and, one played by uh, Ian McDonald. And it's hard to, for me to shake that memory of that song out. I I I. I've got like a visceral sort of uh with this song that I don't like having because the song doesn't deserve that. Well, luckily, I heard it before the Robert Palmer version came out, and I instantly recognized that the Robert Palmer Power Station version was. Although I it I don't have the reaction. I thought that they did a pretty good job recreating it. It's just like why well, did they recreate it? And Power Station just so we can. Put on the record, it's uh, Robert Palmer. It was John Taylor and Andy Taylor, no relation from Duran Duran, and Tony Thompson from Chic. And their version reaches number nine in the U.S. and only number twenty-two in the U.K. So it was less of a hit than the T-Rex version, at least was in the U.K. I don't. What did this song reach in the U.S. The T-Rex version? Do you, do we know? I don't know if I have that. Or I don't not. know if it ever got very high. No, it, no, it, it did. It well. did. I think it was ten or something. Yeah, oh, really? I think so. Um, well, there's a the video has. I guess I don't know if it was top of the pops. Top of the pops with Elton John on with Elton it. Elton John yeah, on it, and it's got yeah, Mark. That was Mullins fake, got, though. That it was, was yeah. him yeah. playing over Rick Reitman. So yeah, actually, it's yeah. it's yeah, it's uh, Elton John is miming the the piano on it, and that's the video that everybody sees when they go on to see a, a quote unquote live version of the song. Yeah, this was the one. Like I said, t- according to Tony Viscotti, this was recorded in L.A. It's got Flo and Eddie on it uh, as they well. They do great. They do great. It was number ten in the U.S. It, number ten. Oh, thanks, Doug. That's that's. It so it started in New York when they were touring. Boland went to the drummer and said, "Hey, can you help me brainstorm some drum patterns for the song he had?" And what he wanted to do, he was actually thinking about doing some uh, Chuck Berry covers for Electric Warrior, but instead, according to him, what he ended up doing is writing his own version of "Little Queenie" by Chuck Berry. And I, I know that, and I don't hear, well, I don't hear that much. Shall we play a little Little Queenie? Let's 
I can see a little bit of it. I mean, the, yeah, just I the, chug, the, chug, the chugging around to it, you know? Um, yeah, I see it. This is also the song, when we talked about how important John Peel was to the band early on, this is a song that broke up their friendship because after he played an advanced copy of it, he told everyone how much he hated it on, on air, I think. And then he calls up Bolin and calls him on the phone and calls him a Judas and said he betrayed his fans and what he stood for, which was poetry and beauty. And he's selling out to rock and roll and just laid all this on the line. And Bolin didn't talk to him again after. I think maybe at one point, I don't know if they ever talked again or not, but that was their falling out was because of this song in particular. And the Viscani says that the original version didn't contemplate putting strings on. They weren't going to put strings on the song. Hmm. And he said, it needs strings. And how he got Bolin to agree to do it. And this goes to what we were talking about earlier about Bolin's kind of image, being image conscious. He said he knew he would get to him if he said, you know, all of your number one hits had strings on it. And so he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. What do we do? We got to put strings on. Yeah. So he calls the guys in and he just has them play on the chorus. Like yeah. he, There's three chords on the chorus, I think, an A minor, a G or I don't know anyway. And he yeah, has there's, them, there's three chords. And he has them play the, the strings play on that bit. It's like a seven um, to a Yeah. So anyway, it's, know, it's like a four, four to a one to a six. Four weeks in the top top of the UK chart. Um yeah, num- as you said, number one in the US on it was number twelve cash box, number ten hot one hundred. So it was a big is it, it was their breakthrough. And as you yeah. said, most Americans probably think of yep. it as their only song. Yeah. But and a lot of people would recognize that song and not be able to tell you who did it. Oh, well, they think it's Power Station. <laughs> or or they would just say, uh, uh, some English guy. It sounds, and, and the thing is, it sounds like this album. It does. You know, it, and why I'm saying that is because, again, coloring it with every, all the history behind the song, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel out of place on no, anything else on I, this album. Right. There's only one song that uh, yeah. jars you out of your, Comfort of your easy chair. Agreed. And it's not Planet Queen, which is next. he does that but it's another song where you can hear everything that comes after that's right one yeah it's it, it sounds if if you're born when we were you think oh he's copying everything i've ever heard right and uh-huh. then you find out oh he was first i mean i can even oddly enough just listening to that one just this last time i it remind me of a clash song i can't really think of but there's like it, there's so many bands that built off of that yeah. sound yeah. you know but, and the vocals are so important to this song is not just his vocals, but the background vocals and just the, the weird. It, it's a it's just, it takes you to a different place, and he, and he is saying some weird lyrics. But 
Um, it's a good one. It is. It's it's one of my favorite songs on the yeah. on the album. And you got to talk about outer space <laughs> if you're doing a glam album, right? Well, or even just this period of time, yeah. you yeah. can't not bring up yeah. outer space. And I love that these flying saucers come and he tells them, "Take me to your daughter." <laughs> That sounds like the gangster of love. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> yeah. But he's the, uh, he's not the gangster of love. He's the warlock of love. <laughs> That's funny. I'm hanging out in Middle Earth. Oh, now I want to be dug. in a flying saucer. <laughs> All right. And then we have Girl. <sighs> oh, wrong song. Wrong band. Wrong band. In society's ditch, you are visually fine. Oh, yes, you are, but mentally dying. Oh, God, I hide your fields of rubber. Come and be real for us, are you with your mind? Time takes a cigarette. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> sorry about I'm that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> if, if I told yeah. you that was, <laughs> now, if I told you that was a Bowie song, or Bowie, I'll, I'll take, take from, you thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. But the there's something that's, that is not quite cooked on this song. It, the horns to me sound like a junior high. I like the horns. They don't sound right to me. They they, they don't. It it sounds like they. Just like I said, it sounds like a junior high uh, stage band uh, playing horns. My my only beef on this song, if there is a beef, is that unlike Rock and Roll Suicide, which actually goes somewhere, this song is just pretty monotonous. It's pretty much the same well, same thing. You know, he runs that ideas um, fast on this song. Unique to this song, in but my mind. I I don't disagree with that. But the other songs are interesting in a way that this song. I don't dislike this song, but it just if there is a knock on it, it's that it doesn't rise to the level of those other songs that are sort of the same structure yeah. in terms of the repetitiveness. I, I wonder if I heard this before I heard Ziggy yeah. or <laughs> I'm about to wake up Alexa. <laughs> no, he just woke her up. Anyway, I. I just, you know, like we're handicapped in that mm-hmm. we can't hear this before yeah. we heard everything that copied it. Yeah. And right. Yeah, boy, no, it's tough. Is, is there anything on the album that sounds more like Bowie than this? Bowie than, no. I mean, this? No. Okay. No, I don't think so. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you can hear bits of Bowie and other things, but this song in particular just sounds like Bowie heard it and was, oh, I'll just add some yeah. different lyrics to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. The motivator? The motivator. Are there better rubies in Egypt than other countries? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's a lyric. Uh, this is "Get It On" part two. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. We've been here before. This is the this song is again just not, it's a minor knock, but it's it's very much "Get It On" part two. I even wrote yeah. that down here. Yeah, I actually because I'm not familiar with it, like it a little bit better because of that. You know, um, it's, well, it's got the guitars is double tracked, which I find a little more interesting. 
it, it's doing something weird too during the so- solo. I don't know what it's making a sound I don't get. I mean, there, there's not a lot of effects on these guitars, I and mean, they're they're all pretty straight. Except when, you know they're doing backwards. All stuff, the affectations but... in the pronunciation, yes, yeah. <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the vocalization. <laughs> um, and I get that. I, I didn't quite get what you were saying before we started, but now that we're listening to it, I I absolutely get what you're talking about in terms of the phrasing and stuff. Um, yeah. Again, minor knock. I the tambourine. I would have been happy if the tambourine wasn't in this song. It's a little over. It's a little much. Oh, God, I didn't think about that. Up next, life's a gas. I love this song. I do too. It's my favorite one on the album. <laughs> I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's also the shortest one it's on the album. So it infectious. This yeah. song will get in your head and then it'll just stay there and bounce Does it around. It make you say, yeah. <laughs> I can't do that. But And it's got that. I, I, I'm guessing this is one where the vocals are double tracked. I don't know that for a fact, but maybe, yeah. Because um, there's just some things where he doesn't quite do the exact same thing. It's not slap. It seems like there's something a little bit. And also, uh, the guitar solo, yeah, I think, has one of the earliest uses of what they call an octavider. Yeah, I wanted to know what that was. That That's that kind of grungy fuzz yeah. sound so, to it. Yeah, and I've got one, and it, it makes your guitar... Isolates two harmonics and they're the, they're at the octave. Okay. So it, it's really cool to play one, and you usually have to play it um, at the higher or lower register if you want to, but you can't like do anything in the mid. Okay. So that I'm pretty sure that's what's going on here. Interesting. I, I can't I can't imagine that this was done like a lot of jazz players. They do octave stuff, but it's always so smooth sounding and. From what I know, if you want to play have an octavider, you have to have distortion involved in it. Yeah, it's a cool sound, whatever it is. It is. I I love the vocals on this song. I love the lyrics. It's my favorite lyrics on the album because they're so odd. I could <laughs> I could have loved you, girl, like a planet. I could have changed your heart to a star. I, mean, I could have built a house on the ocean. I could have yeah. placed our love in the sky. I mean, they're just, they're very visual, but I don't know what the heck they're describing. It's like a really weird <laughs> poster. It seems like he likes her. Life's a gas, and he really hopes it's going to last. Life's a gas, yeah. and it I, doesn't. <laughs> I, you know, not for him, unfortunately. I, uh, this song is great. It's, it's, it's great. a, it's a really, great song. really good song, and it's one of my favorites. Yep. And now we we change. Uh, we go to MC Five. <laughs> uh, that's uh, sure. <laughs> this is a big change, ladies and gentlemen. I don't understand ending with this. Yeah, I this agree. is this is not. I don't think this is a song where the three of us would go. What a great way to end the album. I think this is where Visconti got to have his heyday and go. I want to put a bunch of strings and horns on the end of an album. 
Well, what he says is this: that Boland wrote this song specifically for American audiences. Well, I'm insulted by that. Yeah. And he thinks that Boland was actually satirizing himself in the lyrics, that it became too easy to sound like all the songs they were doing before. So it's a ripoff is about him talking about that. I, I don't know. Again, I think Visconti is like us in terms of trying to figure out what this guy's saying. The thing that gets me is everything up to this point is so economical in the way it sounds. Right. And everything kind of has a purpose. And then there's this wall of noise. His vocals are weird. His you vocals know, are totally you, weird. Yeah. You, you say this a lot, Doug, that when you talk about somebody understanding what their voice is for, his voice is not for this. That's right. That's exactly. I, I would have ended it with Cosmic Dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that would have been perfect. That yeah. would have been perfect. And yeah. I would have be the second uh, song. sold this song to uh, <laughs> somebody else. <laughs> yeah. I, you said MC5, which is much nicer. Well, I was thinking, I heard the song and I kept thinking of the Electric Mayhem, which is the Muppet group band. <laughs> 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 I kept thinking of that, uh, the song from the Muppet movie that they do. This reminds me of it for some reason. Well, I was just wondering if it was kind of like that Jellyfish album that we... Oh, where they just you. slammed yeah, everything like, at the end? Let's put everything we can at the at the very end of this. I, and, well, uh, it if it is, work. they should have called Jellyfish yeah, to figure out should. how to do it. Right. And I guess it, they it, couldn't. It didn't. I, I have the same reaction. This was just like, where did this... It's, it's a shame because I really... Even the songs that I don't think are... Like, there's something about them that don't get... Like, I don't like... I still... There was things I found interesting in it for the rest of the album. And then this comes on and it just takes me out of it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like a gymnastics routine on where everything is perfect and you're amazed and she's about to get a 10 and then she can't stick the landing. Yeah. yeah and right. it's, it's, it's a shame. Anyway, that's electric warrior, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. they it, continued after this. Well, they continued a lot. After and they this. made some more good records. And they did, <laughs> um, records that I did not, the, the second album is, or the album after this. This is, is the second. Album. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The album after this is is really good. There's, and he gets a little um, carried away with himself. I think later. Well, he, not he, producing the best stuff in the no, world. No, he. It, would y'all say that the second album is the second highly highest regarded uh, slider? Oh, you mean the one after this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But but it Slider's seems good. It seems like everything a- after this point gets. Like people are less and less yeah. interested in it. Yeah. He starts. Well, he, he he just keeps doing the same thing. Well, and but when he doesn't, he gets into a sound that people aren't interested in him doing. Well, and he gets yeah. away from Tony Visconti too. Well, I, yeah, not till the Eventually, end. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Well, this but, is what I wanted to talk about. Is okay. Tyrannosaurus Rex the great weakness of Tyrannosaurus Rex? <laughs> is this the forearms? pathetic arms? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never heard an explanation of. of what they could be done. What? What? What's I don't. I don't understand why it doesn't need arms. Why can't it use something? Why did they just disappear into two little forks that don't do anything? Mm-hmm. T Rex, the great weakness is what? I don't know. No. Well, I think he had trouble doing something new. Oh, I. Hmm. I think. I, I think. He had trouble doing something new once he found something that was successful. He didn't want to leave that behind. Yeah, I think well, he. I don't know if he he didn't want to leave it or if he couldn't leave it. Well, I, don't I think know he which changes so much up until this point, and then he finds something that gives him the big stardom he wants, yeah. and then he holds on to that for dear life. 
You know, I think that's that's the thing that um, this is in my mind an exceptional. We got this is an exceptional talent. Yeah, and after I listened to a T Rex album, I'm done for a while. And if if you compare if you compare him to Bowie. Mm-hmm. I can go from one Bowie album, okay, I want to hear another. And I think some of that is because Bowie had more resources at his disposal. He he was also more open to shifting gears and incorporating whatever was happening mm-hmm. at the time. And Bowie was also a much better musician. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I mean, but, but Mark I, Bowie... I think he had a broader vision. Well, Bowie could play multiple instruments. Mark Bowie could barely play his guitar. I mean, he well, got I, better I think at he's it. Got much he's better. a pretty good guitar player, yeah, but he's yeah. not... Um, well, I mean, early guy. on, he's not... But, yeah. I mean, he got better at it, obviously. That's yeah. what I said. But, yeah, he's... Anyway. I just always take the side of mediocre guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Uh, Tony, you going to tell us what happened to Mark after this? Well, like, you know, as retirement, he makes albums that each one is significantly less successful than the next i think it, at some point he completely falls off the charts anywhere he's he not does, charting yeah. anywhere uh he gets uh and I, I forget i read someplace how this happens i think it was based on his performance and what i mean by that his appearance on a talk show but he gets a his own talk show well music program uh called mark uh that he starts having live performances on and he's showcasing a lot of punk bands. The jam is on it. Generation X, which was, um, Billy, Idol. Billy idols, a band. Yeah, I saw that clip. Um, that was pretty interesting. And, and, uh, the last show before he dies is Bowie doing heroes. And then at the, on the fade out, as the credits are rolling, he and Mark Boland start playing a, a song together. There's oh a, yeah. I've seen that's right. the la- yeah. That was the last Mark that's show falls off the stage. That was the last Mark show he did. Um, and then he ends up dying in a car wreck that his girlfriend at the time was driving. His girlfriend was uh, Gloria Jones. Um, Gloria Jones, uh, who was in his band as well. That's and where, who's quite a remarkable singer and has she is. really fun albums. We, I was going to play a, a song that I most people most people would know. Well, from made, soft cell, <laughs> soft cell did it, but she recorded it in 1964. And it is a honey. So yeah, that's tainted love. Which and she's yeah, she's fantastic. Anyway, he uh, he ends up having a kid by her, and the only reason I want to bring it up is because the kid's name was Roland Bowling. Which and then what was Bowie's <laughs> kid's name? Zoe Bowie. Zoe Bowie. I I don't know what it is with these glam guys, and uh, I think I think Zoe has since changed his name. I forget I what it is. Duncan. Now. It is Duncan. That is yeah. correct. You are As correct. Duncan yeah. Jones. You know, it is. That's right. Yeah. From uh, Macbeth. <laughs> But yeah, so um, he ends up getting in a car wreck. She's driving the car. He's twenty nine, and uh, and it and it kills him. Yeah, and, and so, the, the odd thing is, he never learned to drive, but he owned lots of cars. He did he liked he liked sitting in expensive cars? And one of his fears, um, one of the reasons why he never learned to drive, is because he was afraid he was going to die in a car wreck. Well, and uh, 
and and he was starting to have a bit of a resurgence. His yeah, career he, was starting to come got, back. He got yeah. fat and was is when he had the child. Yeah, everything changed. He said he should have had that child a long time ago because he got his life straightened out as soon as that child was born. And uh, yeah. except for the but, time when they went to the bar and drank too much. When you're talking about uh, when you're talking about him being sort of stuck in amber in terms of not willing to change, what's what's interesting about that now? I think about it when you watch the video of Bowie and him playing together. This is the heroes stage, and Bowie is wearing like a shirt. His hair's yeah. cut. He's got sun, like seventy sunglasses yeah. on. He looks yeah. normal. Mark Boland still looks like Mark a glitter Boland. guy from yeah. T Rex. Right. His shirt's open, but and the other odd thing about this, they would on that Mark show, they would play two or three T Rex songs throughout the show that he would lip sync and fake play his guitar, and the guitar isn't even plugged in. I mean, it's obvious that he's kind of phoning, and it's kind of funny. It's charming, yeah. I guess, in a way. Blue, but, uh, was it Bluetooth? <laughs> yeah, maybe, but well, the, but was, the the bands played live, right? Yeah, so. and then there's the is that the one where Bowie starts taking a solo and all of a sudden they they stop because Bowie can't do the solo. I don't know. I haven't well, I haven't watched it in a while. Well, the, I don't remember the one but. that um that, that Tony was talking about. Boland falls off the stage, and it shows a close up of. Oh Bowie's yeah, yeah, laughing. Yeah, yeah that's that, that's it. That's when he stops playing. That's it. That's, yeah. that's the one. Yeah, they have to stop. Yeah, they have to stop. And, and it had to been. It had to been tough for him at that point because Bowie had surpassed him. Right. I yeah. mean, immensely surpassed him in terms of just worldwide popularity. Yeah. And respect and everything else. Um, yeah. So that had to have been tough. But yeah, he died at twenty nine. And well, yeah, almost thirty. Can, can you imagine being upset that? Someone has outdone you at 29. It's all this stuff happened so young, and it always seems like these guys clean themselves up right before, and then right before there's an accident. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, Chris Bell. Chris Bell. I don't think. Um, I think he still had some issues, but it's yeah, it's a shame that he wasn't able to make well, he more didn't music die because of his issues. I thought he just died in a. Well, no, he did. He died in a car wreck as well. I know, but he wasn't high or anything. No, like no, 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 no. I mean, he still had some. When you said clean up, I don't know if he was entirely cleaned up. But that's a different. We'll, we'll cut yeah, all that out. But, laundry. Yeah. yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to be deluged here in Austin, Texas. Obviously, there's a big thunderstorm going on, which is storms are coming. Very appropriate for T Rex. So, at this time, we'd like to thank the individual. Who recommended this album, even though Tony doesn't remember who it was. Sorry. And we'd like to encourage everyone else to recommend an album. Uh, and we got a we got a recent email from somebody saying, uh, Doug Som or the Sir Douglas Quintet, what's the deal? Why not yet? So we may have to think about that yeah, a little I bit. I can't I can't answer that, that question. Yeah. Um, we're in Austin, Texas, and we haven't done yeah, Doug, Doug Som. Som yeah. 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 It's, we gotta explain that in the uh, yeah. The 13th floor elevators. That's gotta, another one. That's another one we got to explain. Anyway, I'm going to ask everybody for their review of this record. I'm going to start with our loyal and humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. You didn't get to talk about yourself very much tonight. <laughs> Would you like to? <laughs> okay, tell I'll us? go first. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, stroking my you're showing ego. Your gun, you're go showing first. your guns over there, J.M. Sorry. <laughs> Sun's out, guns out. <laughs> Um, all right, I'm gonna get my critics rating first. It's a four or five. It is really hard to overestimate the importance of this 
that this album had on the future of not just glam, but in, in rock in general. Um, I don't think you'd have XTC or Squeeze or even Bowie. And then even on um, this side of America, I don't, Alice Cooper, Lou Reed. I mean, would there be anybody? The Dolls. The Dolls, New York yeah. Dolls. Yeah, there's just so many um, influences or the, so many bands. At this Carter family. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to give it some big points for originality and influence. Uh, the songs, the production, the playing, it's, it's all very, very strong. Uh, so it's a strong four or five for me. Um, my personal, I told y'all this before we started it. This was a complicated album for me. The last couple of days I have just realized I actually really, really like this album. And so I'm going to give it a 4.0, but that's, it could go up to a 4.5 again. The question I kept asking myself, take away the influence, because there's so many albums that I love that this, this album is influenced. Do I, do I like this album in and of itself? And the answer is yes. But there's just sometimes, Doug and I both kind of talked about this throughout the podcast, Boland's delivery just bothers me sometimes. Um, it, it seems too earnest where it shouldn't be. Um, I find myself losing interest in some of the songs every now and then, but not the last couple of days. I've, I've been It's been much different. Um, but it was great to revisit it, and, uh, and, and T-Rex in general. I mean, this is the most I've delved into T-Rex and Tyrannosaurus Rex um, ever. The songs were just completely catchy, even mesmerizing, but... Today it's a solid four zero, but tomorrow it could be a four five again. So, T, yes, Doug. Oh, oh you, want you my... don't know what I'm going to say. No. I'm sorry. I, I thought you might. You had a guessed. you had a you 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 had an elevated tone, like you're going to ask me a question. So, well, that was the question, T. All right. I agree with JM's critical four five. I it, when you said originality, that's the thing that struck me is how difficult it is to wrap my head around that. But once you do, you realize how people built on this sound and how much of what I like is a result of this, this album and this, this band. Uh, so yeah. And I found myself, uh, being really in, intrigued by the production. It's really solid. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the only, only real, the only song critically I would knock it for is that last one. It does not belong on the album. Um, or it belongs someplace else where it doesn't have the importance of closing out the journey you just went on. Yeah. So personal, you know, I felt about this album or I thought I was going to feel about this album the same way I felt about Transformer, which was I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. And I ended up coming out of it the same way I did about Transformer. This album surprised the heck out of me. I really, really enjoyed listening to this in a way that I was not certain I would. It took me a while to get there. Maybe the seventh or eighth listening, it something clicked, and I was like, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, the lyrics a little odd; it's repetitive at points. But I'm going to give it a four three. I I will listen to this album again, and some songs in particular I will listen to a lot. I I'm surprised at how much I dug this. Doug, <laughs> thanks, T. Well, I am going to give a critic straight. Let, let me say something first. I've listened to old episodes, and I've noticed I rate albums higher than anyone else. And 
I, I don't know that we're working on the same standard, but I'm rating this against all albums. And we don't talk about horrible albums on this podcast. Right. We only talk about almost every album that we talk about is between four, five, and five stars on most uh, most critics' ratings. So uh, that's that's where I am. Uh, everybody gives this uh, this album a five. Uh, I'm going to give it a four eight, and uh, that's my critics' rating. This is innovative. It's well executed. Very interesting. Having said that, if I hear T Rex for one side of an album, I'm getting close to done because I, I feel there's not enough variation. And there's certainly not any topics being covered that I find interesting. It's it's almost always he wants to bang someone. <laughs> well, I was going to wow. try to say it. I was going to say uh, romantically engage. Um, <laughs> he wants to bang a gong. <laughs> anyway, so for me, it's it's four zero. When I hear this music, and I try to wipe my mind, and wow, this is. Where did this come from? This is unique, and my goodness, how many people have copied it. Mm-hmm. So it gets enormous respect from me for that, but as far as wanting to listen to it, he's not talking about things I'm interested in, and I get tired of that that same shuffle deal he's doing with his guitar, mm-hmm. and almost all the songs are the same uh, tempo. Oh, that's true. I mean, I, th- I think those are all very valid points. Yeah, very and valid. they're almost all blues songs adjusted. For me, a blues guy, I'd rather hear the blues. But it, this is a remarkable album and should be in anyone's collection that's serious about music. Yeah. And with that, and with the pouring rain, <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Well, thanks for that, Doug. And thank you, listeners, for letting us uh, fill your airwaves with another episode of This Is Vinyl Tap, the podcast that always go to 11. We want to uh, remind everyone that we are having a contest right now where you can come up with a new tagline for This Is Vinyl Tap. We've got some great submissions, but we're looking for a few more before we close the contest out. Just to let you know, if you are selected, you will receive either a a gimme hat, trucker hat with uh, this is vinyl tap lapel or the uh, on the front with with the new with the new uh, logo on it or a t-shirt. It'll have the logo on it. The tagline's not on the hat. And if it's a really good, if it's a really good tagline, we won't sign the hat. (laughs) Or you can have a this is vinyl tap t-shirt. And we also want to let you know that if you know anyone who is interested in the long player format, please let them know about this podcast. We're available on almost all podcasting platforms. If you or any of your friends are up there, please leave us a review. Give us some stars. We're always interested in uh, getting some feedback, what we can do better. You can also reach us via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl, or you can visit our Facebook group page if you're so inclined. Also, if you're old school, you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. But of course, for the ultimate This Is Vinyl Tap experience, please visit our website, 
tappingvinyl.com. You'll find links there to all our past episodes and pictures and videos and things that we've talked about, um, about things we've talked about in past episodes and current episodes. You can also contact us there. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by Lucinda Williams, her second album, Lucinda Williams. Doug Cooper, our co-host Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, life is a gas. <laughs> <laughs>